Hello and welcome to Art Witch, the podcast where creativity, magic, and healing align for personal and collective liberation. I'm your host, Zanetta, and welcome. Art Witch aims to provide resources for creative empowerment, helping folks make and share their art and also find their authentic expression. In this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of artists, witches, and healers, as well as experts in various art industries and related fields, all with the intention of helping folks share their art and their unique magic with the world. Hello friends, before we get started on today's episode, I just want to give a special thank you to our newest Patreon members and our existing Patreon members. As the end of the year wraps up and we're almost two months into the Art Witch podcast journey, I just want to reflect on how grateful I am for this community for the Patreon members and all of your support. It really helps bring this work into existence and also the connection that I have with you all really inspires me and gives me ideas about how to create episodes and who to interview and what questions to ask. So thank you all so, so much. If you'd like to support this podcast and you really believe in this work, then I invite you to check out the Patreon page. It's basically a sliding scale community that really revolves around the ongoing meditation library that I'm creating and also a range of spiritual tools, writings, videos, and full moon gatherings that I host. So it's really an opportunity to dive deeper into my work, which is sound and all sorts of ritual aspects, and to also get deeper into creative mysticism. So I really, really appreciate just everyone who's been involved already. And for those of you who I haven't met yet, I can't wait to connect with you more. So you can visit www.patreon.com slash soundartmagic. And soundartmagic is actually my Instagram handle. And it's also the larger umbrella of pretty much all of my creative work. So I hope to connect with you more there. I'll also leave the link down below. And without further ado, here is today's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm so excited for today's episode. Today we have Christy Johnson, who's an amazing textile artist and just creativity teacher and like inspirer and magic maker. Christy, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Zanetta. It's so amazing to connect with your work because I feel like the 
inner child in me really recognizes your work and sees it as something that's very familiar. And the grown up in me is like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. Like, I remember loving symbols and just like the whimsy and magic of the world around me and just feeling that in all the little colors and details and the small things that you remember from your childhood memories. It's, it's almost like a six of cups feeling for me. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> Could you share a little bit about your work and, you know, your journey into embroidery and textile magic? I had the kind of pleasure of growing up surrounded by it. My mother loved textiles. She still does. She's She loves like learning new things. Um, she's an engineer by trade, but, you know, the weekends we would spend just like crafting away. Um, it was kind of a way of, for her to apply her engineering skills for something that wasn't electricity. <laughs> um, and so I kind of grew up just like surrounded by fabrics and yarn and had, yeah, kind of the privilege to be, have access to all the materials. And I realized recently the way that she taught me, well, actually, she didn't really teach me because she was kind of a horrible teacher, to be honest with you. <laughs> but there was like, <laughs> so she's real. just like, she has no patience. And so she's just like, you're not getting it. What's wrong with you? You know, I mean, she, don't, she doesn't say what's wrong with you, but she's just like, you're not getting it. I don't know what, I don't know what else to tell you. So I learned kind of how to teach myself. And I was given a lot of space with that. And I was given a lot of space to make mistakes um, and to do it wrong and to not have a lot of heavy expectations weighing on it because it was for her, it was fun time. Um, it wasn't about like, mm -hmm. you know, I got to do this thing right. It was like, if something didn't work, it was like, ah, try again. And she would move on. There wasn't a lot of dwelling on the things that didn't work out. What a gift. Yeah. I've been realizing recently that like, that's kind of a rare experience to both have like a heavy immersion into like an artistic practice, although she wouldn't call it that. But yeah, have that heavy immersion in, in the arts and also, you know, kind of an openness to what did happen or what didn't happen. Since then, I always have been working with fabrics. Um, I studied fashion design in college and I worked in the fashion industry for a while and was like, this is not what I want to do. I don't like the fashion cycle and the need to constantly be producing and manufacturing. It felt very wasteful to me. Mm. So I started kind of making my own work, which I ended up, I was like, wait, now I'm just the manufacturer. <laughs> oh, whoa, deep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, you know, while I still do make clothes, I separated myself from the idea of having to constantly be manufacturing. Um, and instead, I've chosen to focus a little bit more on teaching other people how to work with these skills and how to kind of approach creativity with, with the same you know concept that my mom did where it's like it's it's fun it's good for you it's not about the product it's about the process and I feel like when you're working with these handmade items you kind of have to explain to people how much time it took because otherwise they don't understand the mm. cost and so it was like this way for me to like explain the cost of things that I was making but I was like oh the teachings it's a lot more rewarding and it felt more um, sustainable I was thinking a lot about magical correspondences because I saw that you have talismans and you take a very sacred, a very magical approach towards, you know, in mainstream society, you've considered like functional artistic practice such as embroidery. And I'd love to hear about 
your explorations with magical correspondences. And I want to add to this, for those who are listening who may not be familiar with what magical correspondences are, magical correspondences can be the herbs that you use in a spell and that each herb has a specific intention and a certain association. Maybe it's even your lived experience or a memory or maybe it's an ancestral connection or something of that nature. But essentially every aspect of what you use or weave into your magical ritual processes is directed towards your intentions for change. So I'd love to hear about your work in discovering different ways of connecting with magical correspondence and embroidery. When you look at a lot of, let's say, um, embroideries from a variety of different regions, they look totally magical. They kind of really light up, you know, looking at different embroideries from Yugoslavia or, um, you know, Afghanistan or Iran and all these different places where, and uh, Africa and like, you know, these Egyptian wedding gowns and things like that. Mm -hmm. You look at these embroideries and you're like, there is something else going on here. (laughs) They just really seem to light up. But I guess it was when I was living in New York City, I only lived there for a year and a half. It was like a very stressful place for me. I'm not built for that much energy. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of commuting on the train. I, you know, I basically lived like an hour from anything. And so I embroidery was something that I could do on the train and it was calming and it was soothing. And so I would kind of just create these designs. And it, a lot of the work that I did with embroidery to start off with was kind of, I don't want to say I worked with it backwards, but it wasn't generally wasn't like, okay, I have this meaning that I want to create. And then I create it. It was like, I'm just going to stitch. And I would stitch and then be like, whoa, what did I just make? You know, it was much more kind of exploratory process. Um, And as I became more skilled, I was able to sort of apply very specific um, intentions with the work and kind of bring about. But still, when it comes down to it, like a lot of my drawing is just sort of um, intuitive drawing. And then, you know, sometimes it's like, I'll draw it and I'm like, whoa, I know exactly what that says. And I know, you know, I know exactly how that can be applied. There's been times where I, you know, I've made like huge quilts and not really kind of understood what they meant for me on a deeper level until it was done. (laughs) And then been like, oh, this clearly came from the conversation that I had with my sister, you know, a few days before I drew this design. And so certain things where like, I would kind of realize exactly how it applied to my life um, after the fact. But for the most part, for working with the talisman and working with those designs, it really is, I usually draw it first. And then we'll say like, oh, okay, I, I know exactly how I can apply that, especially working with natural dyes. It's like, oh, if I did that design on a piece of fabric that's been dyed with marigolds, then that will really help amplify, you know, this this idea. And I love mixing the botanical dyes with it. And also certain, um, if I'm drawing certain herbs, I love working with herbal imagery. And when I'm drawing certain herbs, there's that kind of feeling of, okay, you know, how can I best express what the holistic nature of this herb is beyond the visuals, beyond just mm-hmm. how it comes across um, as an image and include its energetic imprint in this fabric as well. It's interesting. There is the connotations that we hold kind of collectively or traditionally about certain herbs or certain crystals or certain signs and symbols. And then there's the resonance that we can tap into 
underneath that even Mm. we can kind of sink a little further into the wisdom and the messages that are being sent forth through working with that herb or that crystal or that sign or symbol at this moment and then there's there's different layers to that energy i think which makes magical correspondence so interesting and so powerful because it's fluid in a sense it's it's constantly being added to yes we're constantly adding to it and and it's interesting that as we create we are actually creating our correspondences we're actually creating our magical associations with the things that were the tools and the you know herbs and such that we're working with we create that kind of library of information that says when i work with lavender this is what it evokes this is the energy that it can bring this is the magic and it's tied to every spell that we've ever worked with lavender and every memory and every moment that your grandmother handed you a piece of some lavender or you smelled it in the air it's like amazing how we can just tie that all in together and it becomes this ever evolving collection of magic and energy Mm-hmm, definitely. And then somebody else will experience that piece of work. And then their experience with lavender becomes a part of that work, too. And it just kind of, yeah, it continues to kind of echo. That's a part of textile, like wearable textile work that really fascinates me because very much these works will be in the hands of someone else will be worn on their bodies will be adorning their sacred beings mm-hmm. there will be the visions of what beauty is and grace is in someone's home i'd love to hear about your experiences with making these magical textile creations and then seeing them live onward yeah it's really, really enjoyable, (laughs) especially in situations where the pieces just find the perfect home, you know, like, for example, there's one jacket that I made with was like a red and yellow striped snake on the back of it. And um, the person who ended up buying it had owned a snake that looked just like, (laughs) just like the one that I had embroidered. And this doesn't like, you know, she didn't find it on the internet or anything. This is somebody who lived in my town where the jacket was available and she saw it and immediately connected to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, she tags me in these photos of her with her snake in her snake jacket. And I was just like, oh, my God, I love that so much. Um, And it, you know, it wasn't based off of any snake. It just so happened that there was a snake that looked, you know, a breed of snake that looks just like that and happened to be owned by somebody that happened to walk into that store. But also the way that people find their own connections to the artwork, I think is really special. And I think it, it speaks a lot to you know, why I enjoy so much having it be a much smaller scale, um, because that is possible. Mm. And when you have these clothing pieces, your jacket is a protector, like it protects you from the weather, it protects you from that biting elements or insects or anything. And when this protective cloak you're putting on is also infused with these stitches and these intentions, it becomes like just more than just a piece of clothing it has its own energy and it expresses that outwards to the world around you and I find that just really really beautiful and I try and 
keep some of my artwork for myself for that reason. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so that I can enjoy that as well. Instead of being like, no, 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 I don't need a fancy embroidered jacket. I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting because it's true. It's like we can get into this space of constantly sending our work out. And then it's like, actually, occasionally you might need this magic that you created. (laughs) I actually just created a meditation recently and someone was like telling me about how they enjoyed it. And I was thinking about it and I was like, I enjoy it too. I like, (laughs) I was like, I enjoy it. And I actually really needed that. Like I didn't, I made something that I really, really needed. And yeah, part of me feels like that's actually where I find my my creative endeavors really thrive is when I've made something that's like, that was the medicine that I actually needed for myself and I just didn't know it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally, totally. Yeah, do you have any experiences with that? Like in terms of, you know, you create something and then you're like, I actually needed to just be in the world with this thing that I created. And that's part of, that's part of the medicine. Hearing that reminds me of a lot of, some of my favorite herbalists. I love researching herbalism and researching herbs and their relation to kind of the energetic world. And some of my favorite herbalists who have studied herbalism specifically because they were not able to find sort of healing that they were that they were seeking within the Western medicine, within allopathic medicine. And so they turned to the herbs and had their own experience and are able to translate that in a way that I was so much... Um, that I was able to absorb so much clearer than sort of any other. And so I think that that speaks to that same kind of feeling as well, where when we are looking for our own healing, we're able to also share that with others. It's not, it doesn't become sort of a solely internal experience. We're Mm. also able to kind of push that outwards and allow that to kind of ripple out to, to the people around us. The quilt I was talking about earlier where it was like, oh, wow, this this quilt is all about like a certain healing process that kind of me and my sister were going through on, you know, s- certain things that had been left out of our kind of childhood education, I guess, that we had to learn on our own. And it was like looking at the quilt was like, oh, hello. <laughs> that is clearly what is happening here. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of our earlier conversation where we were talking about <clears throat> you know, creative agency and how so many folks will say, I'm not creative, I'm not creative. And that will be a limiting factor in whether or not they actually try to create something or make something. Mm. And I'm reminded of Octavia E. Butler, who said, you know, every story I write or every, every story that I create, I create myself. And just this concept of that, you know, regardless of whether or not you think you're really great at this or very creative, the process of creating has its own power. It's just, it's helpful in its own way. Can you talk a little bit about your experiences leading like workshops or your own personal experiences with this concept about creating in the process and that being its own form of, of healing and medicine? having the ability to kind of see where people that say they aren't creative, like to watch them, like actually be creative (laughs) Um, and come up with their own ideas because my workshops aren't very prescriptive. And so it is kind of open-ended, you know, I'm going to teach you the stitches and then there's usually a time in the end where you kind of create your own 
And there's people that'll just kind of get stuck and, and freeze. And they're like, I don't know what to do. Um, and I'm always like, just, just start. It's just like with the feeling of like having writer's block and people say, just actually start. There's a saying like, you don't get talker's block. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like if you just, the only thing about writing is that you have to actually, you know, do it. So like just start. And even if for the first three pages, it's just like, blah, blah, blah. Don't know what I'm writing. Don't know what I'm writing. After a while, you're going to, that's going to turn into something. Um, and it's the same thing with embroidery or um, anything in the more artistic realm. It's like, just go, just put the needle in the fabric um, and continue to do that. And then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again <laughs> mm-hmm. and something starts to take shape. And then you kind of, you get to make a decision about what the next move is. And that's when people start to recognize that, oh, oh wait, I do have the capacity to kind of create something it might not look exactly like all of the beautiful finished embroideries that are you know in the royal academy of needlework or whatever but um honestly those are not usually the ones especially now that like we're in an age where like the embroidery machine's already been invented Mm. like we don't need to recreate these exact perfect stitches we know that machines can do that and but it's not something that um, people really connect with like perfection that said there are some embroiderers who can do like photorealism and it is incredible (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, but that's just not my style and that's not what I teach so also I've I've read recently about a scientific study that they did you know they did like a a double blind study and apparently creativity is like a total placebo effect so they told half of the study you know smell this substance and then do these tests and then they told the other half of the study this substance um you know we've been doing a lot of research and the substance makes you more creative and it it triggers the parts of your brain that are more creative so we want to see how, how creative you can get and through that they found that the people that were told that the substance made them more creative did like so much better than the people that weren't told that which which is proof that like if you want to be creative stop telling yourself that you're not creative (laughs) because that is so much yeah it's like such a placebo effect of that like I am or am not (laughs) oh thank you for sharing that one way that I really see this happen for me a lot is like in meditation where I come into a meditation and I'm like in one state and then I, I come out of the meditation. It's not just the meditation itself that did something. It's actually like that I was willing to shift that, mm, like mm-hmm. willing to shift the the beliefs that I had about that and what you were um, sharing about, like just start to stitch, just write, just do the thing just kind of like jump in and do it because there's this element that our minds are really kind of ruling this situation, right? Like our minds are kind of like, you are not creative. You are not able to do this X, Y, Z. And of course that's not true. Yeah, (laughs) It's like, of course that's not true. No matter how believable that story is, no matter how real it may seem, your mind actually is just not really accurate in that way. So it's amazing to hear that study and then also to just hear jump in. Well, and so much of our intrinsic nature or like our, our primal nature is like about protecting ourselves. It's like this fear-based thinking that's based in a world that like we don't live in anymore. By doing something incorrectly um, on a piece of paper or on a piece of fabric, you know, no one's dying. You're not risking your life. Um, you're not risking your family's life. So it is really like moving past that like kind of primal mind of fear of just like, don't, you can't do it that way. <laughs> yeah. You know, that primal mind, that primal fear... I've spent a lot of time kind of examining that within myself because for a very long time, I just 
couldn't get my own artwork out there. And Mm -hmm. I did a lot of like kind of the decolonizing work and kind of exploring how my parents and their history and what kind of situations they grew up in kind of contributed to my relationship with creating. And one of those big puzzle pieces was that survival factor. It was so much about like creativity is this big chaotic unknown. It's scary. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're opening yourself up to the elements and asking for lightning to strike you down. (laughs) (laughs) And there's no safety in that. There's no security. There's no stable job. There's no like, you know, clear outcome. And it took me a really long time, like a decade to be able to kind of recognize that, recognize when it comes up and kind of say like, that was a very big part of, you know, my mom's like lived experience or something like that. And, and that's not really the realm of, of what's entirely possible. There's so much more beyond that. I know it, like, I know it to be true that there's something beyond that. So it's, I feel like this is really powerful, just being able to hear your perspectives and and hear that, you know, just be reminded over and over again that, you know, you can, you can definitely be creative regardless of what you think about yourself. I was thinking about how there are some more like traditional kinds of, you know, approaches and aspects to learning a craft learning Mm -hmm. any creative skill and also like the being open and intuitive and trying new things. And, and, you know, there's like that end of the, the spectrum of approach where you have kind of a more set way where you learn these skills and these skills are important. And then you also have like kind of releasing from that and going with your flow and trying things and experimenting you've obviously taught classes to people probably of all sorts of like backgrounds and abilities and skill levels. And I'm kind of curious to hear, do you feel like there's a blend of that that can be balanced or aspects of laying a foundation of tradition or maybe not, or just going in? What have you noticed seems helpful or constructive? Yeah, I had a broad spectrum of sort of like ages and experience. And I do think just based on the area that I'm in, it's a little bit of an older demographic. And so I've taught people, you know, like people who are like 75, how to embroider. And they they, they already knew, like they learned when they were young, but they kind of just wanted a refresher. In some cases, there's this like, okay, but how long is this stitch supposed to be? And I'm like, well, you know, it can be, (laughs) why, why don't you try it out at a few different lengths? Like there's no like, you know, very specific way to do it. And so having that experience of like, there's an expectation of the, of the precision of it, um, because that's how they were taught in the first place. And that's kind of part of the reason, I think the fact that embroidery hasn't really been taught for the most part, like, you know, a lot of these women who are 75, 85 years old, they, ha- they learned embroidery in school. It was something they learned, you know, as part of their curriculum. And most people who are under the age of 40 probably didn't have that in their existence or under the age of 30 probably didn't even have like a home ec class Mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, learn the different sewing skills. And so I feel like the act of embroidery is a way to access this like artistic kind of creativity without having to be 
having it all tied up in the idea of like, is it creative or is it not? Like I, for me, it's kind of like this gateway. <laughs> a little bit of a gateway, like, oh no, we're just learning crafts. <laughs> and I'm like, I know it's not just crafts. <laughs> I don't think any crafts are just crafts. Even, you know, certain crafts that have been kind of like tossed aside, like scrapbooking or something, where I'm just like, that's so beautiful that people are, you know, creating these books of memories and adding elements that emphasize the meanings of these images. You know, it does what creativity in any other realm does. It calms the mind. It levels out their mood. It allows them to to reconnect with these images. It allows them to kind of express themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we kind of cheapen some of these skills but I think they're still really beautiful I don't know if that answered your question you know it really made me think about like how a lot of forms of expression artistic forms of expression that are kind of categorized as more femme work like embroidery like sewing skills stuff like that um even scrapbooking you know is really often placed in a really separate kind of container of being like this is a craft this isn't like actually art right you know because what because someone's grandmother made this you don't think this is art (laughs) like totally like what it it comes down to like these were these were the acts that were initially done within the home they were done within the space of the home you know these sort of femme acts they weren't shown to much outside the home because in a lot of cultures the women of the family were maybe not allowed to be seen um, thinking specifically in certain sort of Muslim cultures and different Bedouin cultures. Yeah, these these embroideries never really made it outside the home. And by bringing those outside of the home, that gives the women agency. Um, they're all of a sudden able to kind of start supporting themselves by being able to sell these pieces. And this is, I'm talking about like very traditional cultures. But yeah, the idea that these are crafts and this is fine art is a total patriarchal concept. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) who's to say that painting on a canvas and stitching on a, on a dress or stitching on a a hat, you know, these beautiful hand embroidered hats and things, who is to say that one is more or less than the other, that one has more or less meaning than the other. Right. And that really only benefits like cis, white, hetero males. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was reading about kind of the history of embroidery. And basically after the Black Plague, um, a lot of the wealthy patrons of embroidery and needlework in general uh, died. Basically, there was like a a lot less clientele. And so the embroiderer guilds were kind of taken over by men. It was actually illegal for women to do this work. There was kind of this disconnect, whereas before then there was plenty of really like popular and you know, artistically driven embroiderers. And then it just kind of all shifted after that. And then, you know, the idea of this sort of like preconceived kit that was like, oh, you can only make this if somebody else has already designed for you kind of came in. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like, that's the only way in these time periods that women were allowed to access these forms. Oh, my golly. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. When you get into the history of this, this is kind of incredible. (laughs) Yeah. I'm thinking about my earliest experiences with embroidery. The first thing I ever made was this Beauty and the Beast, the rose in the glass case of like Uh, (laughs) the Disney movie, like Beauty and the Beast. And I was like, (laughs) I need to make that. Like, I don't know how and I don't know why I I need like basic sewing skills I was like 11 and I was like I'm gonna make this thing and I freehand drew it it was it was it was 
It was very special. <laughs> it was super special. I mean, it was beautiful. Like, I, I love it. I look back on it. I'm like so proud of that thing. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have a kid or anything. And I didn't know that kids existed. Now, as a grown up, how did I think that I was going to do that? Right. <laughs> like, how could I have possibly created something like that? And of course, it was a lopsided flower. Yeah, <laughs> right. But it was so 100% from the heart. Like, it was a child's heart, 100% invested in that process. And I worked for like months on it. I was like, gotta like put my time on my embroidery like you still have that I think it's at my mom's place but it was I mean I hope I didn't get rid of it because it was just like everything this was a real page of cups moment for me I love that yeah, and I think, you know, I'm like not against kits or anything. I do think they can help train. There's a phrase in one of one of my books that I read. It was like copy until it feels good. Mm-hmm. Basically, where you like do something until it, you've trained it into your system and you know how to do all those stitches. And kits can be a great way to learn that. But the idea that like you're not able to move beyond that or, you know, and some people just like the kits because it's like, I just want to zone out in front of the TV for an hour. And sometimes that's all you need. <laughs> you don't want to have to do the thought and the picking the color and the this and that. But like, I do think the idea that you're stuck with that is sort of not ours to keep. Yeah. And to keep reinforcing over and over and over again. Like, this is the way it has to be. You have to learn from the kit. You have to have some kind of preset path into creating and engaging with this artistic expression. I was thinking a little bit about ritual. I was thinking Mm. about magic. I was thinking about your practice with ritual and how that evolved with your practice of embroidery. You know, particularly, did it come before? Did you practice ritual magic before you really got into what you are currently doing? Or yeah, if you'd share a little bit about that experience and process. Yeah, I I do feel like they did kind of um, come hand in hand. And I think a big part of that was experiencing winter up here. I think winter in the city is different because things are going on, you know, it's busy, it's bustling, whatever. But like where I am, which I'm about two and a half hours north of New York City, mm-hmm. and winter is cold and dark and silent. <laughs> and there's not a whole lot going on. And I grew up in Florida. I lived in Los Angeles for 10 years. And so winter is not an experience that was familiar to me. So having that experience of like the kind of darkness of winter my first winter living up here, I think that was six years ago, is when I really started looking more into tarot and tarot immediately kind of leads you into, you know, ritual and engaging in the cards in a meditative way. And I had already been doing a lot of meditation and working from that aspect, but to include magical direction into it and more intentional beyond just, um, centering the mind or calming the mind. And I think that came a lot from being outside of cities. There wasn't the need to calm. Like I was surrounded by calm. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Yeah. So it was like, okay, now that I found the calm, like what can I create in this space? And how can I connect deeper with different kind of ideas, different ways of being different realms, I guess. And so the researching of tarot, I just like ate it up. You know, my first winter here was like, oh my God. And I had all the time to just be reading and and sitting in front of the fire. Yeah, that hearth magic. 
Totally. Tending the hearth, it's such a real thing. And we heat our home almost exclusively on the wood stove, keeping this flame burning constantly while stitching. And that really opened up the door to exploring magical correspondences and how that can work within ritual. And because it tied into my studies with plants, with natural dyes, with herbalism. So, you know, just kind of fell right into place with that. And working with symbols, you know, like all of a sudden, all of these found a place where they could all exist as one and they could all be tied together Mm. um, and all be woven through. And that, you know, they all had this common thread of, yeah, just experiencing uh, things on a deeper level and learning about the energetics of things. So ritual started to come in. And at that same time, it was like, okay, now that I've been embroidering on the train in New York City to keep calm, it's like, how can I expand on those embroideries and these visuals and really explore what's coming through? Hmm. That's so timely because, you know, probably by the time this episode is airing, it's probably around December or winter time in the Northeastern United States. And there are certain practices that really lend themselves to certain seasonal energies. And thinking about you by the fire, thinking (laughs) about you just kind of like tending the stove and stitching quietly. Like, I don't know what your life is like, but but I have this image in my mind of that silence that comes with snow being of the deep earth. And how it's really interesting what can just be growing underneath that surface. Like what can be shifting and opening up and kind of just what ideas are coming in, into form in the shapelessness of that void in that time and space of winter. Mm-hmm. That's so cool, Christy. I love that. Yeah. And I love that you too, like have that same kind of approach where you're like, wow, winter, you know? Um, But yeah, having that experience of watching plants where you're just like, that plant's dead now. And then understanding that, no, it's just pulled all its energy down to its roots and it's going to come back in six months. (laughs) I think the first spring summer that I spent after like a winter here, I was like, oh, I guess that was just a phase, you know, a whole like tarot and ritual thing was just a phase and Mm -hmm. now I'm back out in the yard and then winter comes back again and I'm like oh no it's not a phase it's a cycle you know (laughs) it's like this isn't like a straight line we're not working on a straight line here we're working in a spiral (laughs) yeah (laughs) we keep coming back to this area doesn't mean that we're going to be at the same point in this area next year it just means that that time of the year is when I come back also forgiving myself for maybe not working in kind of a ritual setting in the summertime and then also understanding that like the fact that I don't want to work with natural dyes in the middle of December is a totally natural thing. I don't want to be having my hands in a pot of water and, you know, having wet hands all the time in December. I'd much rather do that in June outside. This is so, so powerful because we get into this treadmill almost of this is what I do. This is what I have to do. I have to do it year round. I have to, have to, have to. You know what? Take a cue from the earth, friend. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's a balance to our creative output and input. There's a balance between our replenishment, letting the seeds kind of take shape and form, letting ideas blossom, you know, letting things kind of naturally come into existence, having certain processes that are better during certain times of the year. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I love that. 
I think one of the first things that comes to mind is that that's a hard thing to stand firm in with oneself. It's a really hard thing because you have to make money. You have to, you know, somehow find some sense of growth and getting your work out there and all that jazz. I hear that. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit to that? You know, how you have kind of come into this understanding of like cyclical creative work and how you own that truth and hold yourself in that space. Yeah, that's definitely been somewhat of a challenge where it is, you know, I'll gain traction as, you know, oh, like she works with natural dyes and this and that. And then, yeah, like basically come November, I've put the dye pots away and I fear that it's seen as like, oh, you know, she was just like experimenting with that and and she's not really that passionate about it. Wow. Yeah. You know, I don't know. This is just my inner voice, but the voices that I hear are like not consistent, not being consistent, not consistently creating the same thing over and over again. Mm hmm which I think it's a lot to expect. And again, it's that linear path as opposed to the kind of spiralic path. And I I find it important to recognize the cycles, that recognition of like, okay, the embroidery happens in the wintertime when I'm inside tending the hearth because that's something I can do in that space. The dyeing happens in the summertime you know, that's when I can tend to that space because I prefer to do that outside when I'm splashing around. Like, yeah, having like consistently wet and soggy hands in the wintertime is, it's unhealthy. And so I was trying to kind of force that. And it was like, just put it down. Just put the pots down, wrap that whole scene up and revisit it um, next year. If I was living in Los Angeles, yeah, it wouldn't be a big deal. But I live in an area where natural cycles are very extreme. Mm -hmm. um, And there's very little light in the wintertime and really kind of embracing that. I think it can get confusing for people. Oh, well, I thought she was doing natural dyes and now she's doing embroidery. And again, this might just be my own kind of inner dialogue. But I generally try and include them both in things. And that comes to like embroidering with fabric that I dyed in the summer and embroidering it in the wintertime and just allowing the two acts to exist at the same time and in the same pieces sometimes. That's definitely been something where I feel like it might not seem that consistent, but it's the truth of my experience. And it's also how I'm pretty certain most people generally worked before the idea that you like had to be producing all the time the same thing and you know have this sort of consistency I don't imagine that people were dyeing their clothes in the wintertime the dyes are you know the plant dyes are so much stronger when they're fresh or at least some of them some of them work great when they're dried too but why start a fire and waste the wood specifically for you know dyeing something when you can just wait six months yeah I also love the idea that it gets folks attuned it gets your community that's, you know, connecting with your work, it gets them attuned to cycles as well. Mm -hmm. It allows them to start to connect with the earth on a deeper level and to recognize that the fact that something isn't available for you at this time just makes it all the more precious when it is available, all the more magical and more sacred. Yeah, that's like, for me, that's like my experience with tomatoes. <laughs> yes. Where I stopped buying grocery store tomatoes because they don't compare to the ones in the garden. <laughs> but then when I have a fresh tomato in the summertime, I'm just like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever experienced. <laughs> oh, Christy, I have one last question for you that I ask everyone who comes onto the podcast. And that is, what advice would you have for your younger artist self? I guess it would be kind of stay in your own lane. (laughs) Um, And I guess kind of very much like hermit energy where it's like focus on your own light. 
I think there was a lot of, I don't want to say copying, but like a lot of sort of trying to reflect the works of others. I did a lot of like switching back and forth between styles or being like, oh, now I'm doing this. Oh, now I'm doing this. And now I'm doing this. Not that I regret that at all, but I do think that I could have spent a lot more time sort of exploring my own ideas and exploring, you know, kind of my own internal workings instead of external sources. Mm. And I think that's when I kind of start really started to find my own style was when I did start really exploring my own internal worlds. Oh, such helpful advice. Thank you so, so much for all your wisdom, for your story, for just sharing this gift of, you know, textile magic with us and all the insights. I felt like I'm, I'm going to like be processing this conversation and being like, yeah, oh, oh that's what Christy said <laughs> <laughs> later on. Aww, amazing. Thank you. I, I love talking about this. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode of Art Witch, please consider subscribing or writing a review. Each and every little bit helps spread the word to more and more people.